I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Physicians love laboratory-based drug development. What if we also embrace the healing power of plants? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. Cassandra Quave is known as the plant hunter. As an ethnobotanist, she's been searching for plants that offer anti-infective properties. What has she discovered? Can we learn valuable lessons from the traditional knowledge held by communities around the world? They've been using plants medicinally for centuries. Are there ways to compensate native healers for their intellectual property? What does ethnobotany have to offer in our fight against COVID-19 and other viral infections? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, Paxlovid is an antiviral drug prescribed to older people with COVID-19. When the drug was first tested and found effective, the dominant strain of the coronavirus was Delta. How well does this medication work against the Omicron variant that currently dominates? Israeli researchers recently published a study bringing these data up to date. The investigators surveyed the data on over 100,000 patients utilizing Klalit Health Services while the Omicron variant soared. More than 40,000 Israelis with COVID-19 infections were at least 65 years old. The scientists looked at COVID hospitalizations and deaths in this age group. They found that 11 of the patients who got Paxlovid early in their illness were hospitalized, and two of them died. For comparison, among those who did not get Paxlovid, 766 needed hospitalization and 158 died. That's a significant risk reduction. But wait, you may say, we can't compare these numbers until we have denominators, so we can measure apples to apples. For older Israeli patients who took Paxlovid, the rate of hospitalization was 14.7 per 100,000 person days. For those who did not take Paxlovid, that rate was 58.9 per 100,000 person days. That's a very significant difference. Perhaps the most striking and probably the most controversial part of this study is what it did not find. There was no evidence that Paxlovid prevents hospitalization or death from COVID-19 among younger individuals. Cancer patients and people with suppressed immune systems were more likely to take advantage of a prescription for Paxlovid. However, for those under 65, it didn't move the needle. Perhaps that's because death due to Omicron was rare among both those who took the antiviral medicine and those who did not. When you examine the official prescribing information for cholesterol-lowering statin-type medications, you'll see mention of side effects such as muscle pain, muscle spasms, and muscle fatigue. But two new reports question whether drugs like atorvastatin, rosuvastatin, or simvastatin actually cause musculoskeletal pain. Last week, the United States Preventive Services Task Force published its final guidelines on statin use for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in adults. It also offered a perspective on statin side effects. 
The task force determined that statins are unlikely to cause serious side effects such as diabetes or muscle pain, based on data reported in clinical trials. This week, the Cholesterol Treatment Trialist Collaboration published its assessment of statin side effects in The Lancet. The authors were specifically interested in muscle symptoms. They analyzed 19 placebo-controlled trials involving nearly 124,000 patients, plus four additional clinical trials comparing intensive statin therapy to more moderate dosing. The conclusion? Statin therapy caused a small excess of mostly mild muscle pain. Most, greater than 90% of all reports of muscle symptoms by participants allocated statin therapy were not due to the statin. The authors go on to state that when a patient reports muscle symptoms while taking a statin, they're unlikely to be caused by the drug. The investigators note that there was substantial variation in how the studies defined and reported muscle symptoms. Nevertheless, the authors believe that muscle pain experienced during statin treatment is mostly imaginary or due to aging and not brought on by the drugs. An analysis of serious side effects reported to the FDA Adverse Event Reporting System has put the spotlight on a class of drugs used to lower blood sugar. These medications include Trulicity, Bayetta, Bidurion, Lixumia, and Ozempic. The FDA scientists found a number of reports of acute gallbladder attacks associated with these drugs. Not only are such attacks painful, they can be dangerous. Most of the 36 cases in the database required surgery, and a few of them resulted in patient death. FAIR's data may represent just the tip of the iceberg. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Before there were drug companies, there were experts in using plants to help people heal. Ethnobotanists have been documenting the traditional ways in which people use the plants in their environment for medicinal purposes. As a medical anthropologist, I find this intrinsically interesting, but it also has practical implications. To learn more about how we can use compounds derived from plants to fight infections and help treat cancer, we turn to Dr. Cassandra Quave. She is their herbarium curator and an associate professor of dermatology at Emory University, where she also holds an appointment as associate professor in the Center for the Study of Human Health. Dr. Quave leads anti-infective drug discovery research initiatives and teaches courses on medicinal plants, food, and health. She's the author of The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Cassandra Quave. Hi, it's great to be here. Dr. Quave, why is antibiotic resistance so personal for you? Can you please share your story? Sure. So I was born with a number of congenital birth defects that led to the necessity of having my leg amputated at the age of three. And unfortunately, like, like many people, I developed a hospital acquired infection. Now at the time that infection was treatable with antibiotics, but had it been the types of Staphylococcus aureus that we have today in the community and in the clinic, I might not have been so fortunate. Um, so I, my research is focused on 
looking for new ways to treat drug-resistant infections. And, and it is a deeply personal kind of endeavor. Well, we have talked to uh, other people about antibiotic resistance. Some have suggested that it may be the next pandemic. Can you describe the urgency of the problem of antibiotic resistance? Absolutely. I mean, some people are calling it the silent pandemic. Um, I can give your listeners some numbers. We currently have around 700,000 people that die globally every year due to untreatable antimicrobial resistant infections. And by the year 2050, so by mid-century, that number is projected to reach 10 million a year. That's five times the number of deaths from COVID-19 in the first year of the pandemic. So this is happening and it's happening across the globe. What else is exacerbating this, this issue is that we really have a drought when it comes to the pipeline of new antibiotics. Unlike other drugs for different chronic diseases, antibiotics, with the more that they're used, the more likely we have that they're going to lose their efficacy um, because of the ways that they work on placing direct selective pressure on the ways that bacteria survive. Um, and so it is a serious problem. And, you know, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, antibiotics were you know the game changer in medicine. Our entire medical enterprise depends on them, whether it's for childbirth or surgery or even treating minor scrapes and wounds or UTIs or strep throat. I mean, we've really come to rely on these precious resources. But, but the superbugs are out there. And how do we begin to prepare for this fight? And as you've pointed out, it's going to get much, much worse. Well, I think personally, my thought is that we have to continue innovating. We need to continue to fill that drug pipeline, but also think a bit more broadly about what does it mean to treat an infection? So as a medical ethnobotanist, I spent a lot of my time both in a very high tech, you know, medical laboratory that I run with a team of 30, but I also spent a lot of time you know, trekking through the woods and speaking with healers from different cultures around the world. And one thing that I've learned over, you know, more than 20 years in this field has been that you don't always have to outright kill a pathogen in order to, to heal the patient. And that's something I've learned from healers. There are plentiful examples of in which healers use plants that don't have antibiotic activity in that they don't act on slowing down or killing the growth of the bacteria or killing the bacteria, but instead interfere with the ways that those microbes communicate with one another. They block the ability of these, of these bacteria to produce toxins or to stick to surfaces. And so I think, you know, I'm drawing inspiration from these ancient medicines and we're researching these in the lab with the hope that we can think about, you know, new ways to address infection, because in the end, the goal is really to heal the patient, to restore balance. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from these plant medicines. Cassandra, I wonder if you could give us one example of a plant medicine that helps heal without killing the bacteria. Absolutely. So I'll give you one example that's actually found here in the U.S. It's the Brazilian pepper tree. It's originally from Brazil, as the name kind of hints at. But you know, today it's considered a noxious weed and is very hated in the state of Florida where I grew up. But in traditional um, medicine in Brazil and in their pharmacopoeia, going back hundreds of years, as, as we found documented in you know ancient texts that were written in Latin, 
we know that this plant was useful as a topical therapy for non-healing wounds and ulcers. And one of the big discoveries that my lab has made in, in recent years is that we found compounds in the fruits of this plant that directly interfere with the way that staph bacteria, including MRSA or methicillin resistant staph aureus, communicate with one another. And basically, if you think about you know, how bacteria are able to survive and really expand um, their populations in a host, they need to coordinate their behavior. And so by blocking that coordination, you basically take away their ability to produce all of those toxins that damage our tissues. And so here we have something, again, going back centuries in traditional medicine that does not inhibit the growth or kill the bacteria, but instead basically diminishes their success rate, their ability to really cause damage to the host. And I think there's a lot of promise for these types of therapies in the future and, and much more work still needs to be done in different animal models and eventually in clinical um, human studies. You open your exciting book, The Plant Hunter, with a lovely vignette of you taking your students into the field in Florida, looking for a blackberry bush in the swamp. Can you tell us why this plant is so important? Yeah, so um, my my work years ago, I, my first research experience was in the Amazon. And then my second field study was in Southern Italy, where I worked with uh, an ethnic minority group of descendants of Albanians that immigrated there five centuries ago. So really interesting um, population. And while I was there um, and conducting my, my doctoral dissertation research, I was focused on plants used to treat skin disease. So I interviewed people about what do you put on your skin if you have a scrape or a wound or an infection? And one of the plants that came up in conversation again and again was this species of blackberry known as the elm leaf blackberry or Rubus almifolius. And they would take the leaves and pound it with kind of pork fat and apply it to the skin to treat these infected abscesses. Well, in the lab, I discovered that, again, another example where this blackberry extract doesn't actually influence the growth of the bacteria like you would see with the classic antibiotic. Instead, what it does is it stops the bacteria from sticking to surfaces. And so all of us have encountered bacterial biofilms, and we do every day. If you rub your tongue over your teeth in the morning, you feel that kind of gritty feeling before you've brushed your teeth. Those are microbes that have overnight begun to stick to your tooth surface. And so bacteria like staph um, also will do that both in a wound bed, or they can also do that. Um, deeper in the tissues. So this is a big issue for patients that have implanted medical devices. So whether it's an IV catheter or an, a knee implant or a hip replacement, these are at risk of um, having bacteria basically land on those devices and then stick and build up this community. I, I describe it in the book almost like a defensive fortress, right? Because once they get into that biofilm environment that they create, they slow down their growth. They slow down their metabolism. And guess what antibiotics work on? They work on rapidly dividing cells, right? And so there's more, it's not only the physical kind of goopy matrix that they excrete that they hide in, but also the fact that they change their growth rates um, in these environments. And so what I found was that this elm leaf blackberry extract works really effectively at blocking the ability of these bacteria to stick to surfaces um, I also found that when you combine this extract with other um, functional classes of antibiotics, that you can clear devices, you can remove those adhered cells from um, artificial devices in, in lab studies. 
And so that was actually the focus of my first patent um, on this composition. And we've since sub-licensed out the technology to another company that's working on integrating this into a medicated bandage. It's an eco-friendly, all-natural medicated bandage to really help treat patients that have these chronic non-healing wounds, which is a big problem, especially for the elderly population, venous leg ulcers, diabetic foot ulcers, um, and bed sores and things like that. So I'm hopeful for that innovation and we'll see if we're able to make it through the FDA's medical device um, pathway. Um, but what I was hunting for in that swamp were other related species of that blackberry because um, often you find similar chemistries um, across related species. So from within the genus, different species, you were looking for the potential that uh, the Florida blackberry that grows wild there might also have some biofilm interrupting activity. Exactly. Well, I think it's going to be really exciting to see how that works out. Uh, speaking as a person who has uh, witnessed a venous ulcer, my my mother had one that troubled her for about a year. It just wouldn't heal. It's mm. really a problem. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Dr. Cassandra Quave. She's the herbarium curator and an associate professor of dermatology and associate professor in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University. There, she leads drug discovery research initiatives focused on fighting infections. She also teaches courses on medicinal plants, food, and human health. Her new book is The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. After the break... Does the history of medicine offer clues about possible medical innovations? In traditional societies, people use their observational skills to discover healing plants and then share that knowledge with younger generations. Modern medicine has mostly turned its back on that ancient wisdom. How can Dr. Quave get her colleagues to pay attention? She'll also tell us about a paradigm shift away from antibiotics to other ways of treating infections by supporting the body's natural defenses. Does centuries-old traditional knowledge offer any clues? You'll find out about some of the cool discoveries from her lab and her hopes for the future. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Gaia Herbs. For years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds. Learn more at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. 
and by Cocovia with its memory and focus product designed to support five areas of brain performance with one capsule daily. Memory and focus is a blend of plant-based ingredients. More information at Cocovia.com. People all over the world have relied upon plants as part of their healing practices. Traditional Chinese medicine uses combinations of herbs to maximize benefits and minimize side effects. Ayurvedic medicine also includes many plants in its pharmacopoeia. In the past, we have talked to people who have traveled the Amazon and learned how native healers there utilize plants from their environment to treat a wide range of ailments. Dr. Quave just described a field trip to the wilds of Florida, looking for a particular blackberry bush. Healing plants don't have to be far away and exotic. Can modern medicine take a page from the traditional healers? How can we learn about the healing power of plants? We're talking with Dr. Cassandra Quave. She's the herbarium curator and an associate professor of dermatology at the School of Medicine and Associate Professor in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University. There, she leads drug discovery research initiatives focused on fighting infections. She also teaches courses on medicinal plants, food, and human health. Her new book is The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. Dr. Quave, How has the history of medicine offered you clues towards new medical innovations? Yeah, so anywhere that humans have lived on Earth, there is a historic system of medicine. Many of your listeners may be familiar with um, traditions like traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurveda or Unani medicine um, or shamanic medicine practiced across Asia, Africa, South America. Basically, anywhere that humans have lived within an environment, they have sorted through these hundreds of thousands of plant species to determine which of these resources could be used to heal. And I think that's just really an incredible thing. We know that today there are around 374,000 species of plants on earth. And the total tally right now of documented plants being used in traditional medicine for healing and assortment of diseases is 33,000. So that's roughly 9% of all plant life. Um, and that's just incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm often asked about, you know, how did people figure out which plants to use? And a lot of it comes down to the powers of observation. When you live embedded within an ecosystem and are dependent on those resources in that ecosystem for your food, for your shelter, for your medicine, you know, there's 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 this power of, of observation, not only of how animals are using these resources, but there's also a lot of a lot of experimentation. You know, science doesn't just happen to happen in a laboratory by a doctor in a white coat. You know, indigenous peoples have been undertaking scientific exploration of the natural world for as long as we've walked the earth. Um, well, I remember talking to Dr. Mark Plotkin, another ethnobotanist, a couple of decades ago, and he had done a lot of research in the Amazon rainforest. And what he said was that there would be tribes that were separated by hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles, but they used the same plant to treat the same condition. It was somehow they had 
discovered that this plant was really good for this particular problem. And other indigenous peoples had learned the same exact thing. It's like, wow, observation works. Absolutely. I mean, I get it. It's the power of that kind of empirical research that they're undertaking. What else is amazing is that while these different um, indigenous groups are using some of the plants in the same ways, they each have their own local names and the local kind of lore around the origins of those plants and, and, and knowledge that's passed down. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for people that don't have a close relationship with nature to understand how this kind of body of knowledge can be generated and passed down. And one of the simplest ways I've, I've come to explain it is, you know, if you think about a family recipe, if your great, great grandmother had an amazing cake recipe and she passed that down to her daughter and then to her daughter and so on, maybe at each generation, there's a slight change to that recipe. Maybe somebody added a little bit extra cinnamon or someone added some more nutmeg or added, you know, or cooked it longer or, or, or whatever. The point is grandma's recipe at its fundamental core tastes really good, right? If it tastes awful, that knowledge of her recipe isn't going to be passed down from generation to generation. And I think in many ways, you know, traditional knowledge of, of healing plants works in much the same way. If something consistently doesn't work for what you're taught it works for, that's knowledge that's not going to be passed down. And so traditional knowledge is dynamic. It's constantly changing as it passes through um, different people's hands. And I mean, I think it's just such an incredible place to start when you're thinking about how to take a targeted approach to drug discovery. Why not start with the things that people have already been trying for centuries? What disappoints me, Dr. Quave, is that modern medicine has kind of turned its back on that ancient wisdom. And, and so it's like, a lot of health professionals these days kind of go, oh, well, isn't that quaint? You know, that, that's folklore. That's, you know, those are old wives' tales. Uh, those home remedies, there's no science to support them. We need modern medicines, translational medicine. We, we need, you know, from the lab bench to the patient. We don't, we don't need those plants anymore. And yet I think we need them more than ever. And that traditional wisdom is so powerful. How do you interact with your colleagues? Because you, you are, after all, at a medical school. How, how, how do those dermatologists in your department relate to your kind of research and your kind of wisdom? That's a great question. I mean, first of all, I, I'm just so incredibly fortunate to have such amazing colleagues in the dermatology department. I'm the only non-clinician in the department. And I, I say it's a testament to their open-mindedness, the fact that as an ethnobotanist in a derm department. Um, but, you know, I think that they recognize and, and more people are beginning to recognize in the medical field that many of what we, of the drugs that we consider the products of modern medicine um, actually originated in traditional medicine. Um, you, if you think about some of our leading therapies for pain, aspirin, morphine, codeine, all originally from plants that were used for the purpose of treating pain. If you look at some of our cancer drugs, Taxol, Camptothecin, Etoposide, let's talk about infection, malaria, look at quinine, artemisinin. I mean, the list goes on and on. And these are not just quaint drugs. These are drugs that are included in the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. So they are absolutely 
fundamental to our ability to practice modern medicine today. I think part of the problem is that we've lost sight with the origins of our medicine. Um, and I wish this is something that, that could be taught more, not only um, in medical schools, but also in pharmacy and in, in colleges, really about the origins of where our medicines come from. Um, the other thing that really challenges this or presents a challenge to this issue is, you know, in the United States, herbs are regulated differently than pharmaceutical drugs. Um, and there's a lot of marketing hype, not always based on science, that can kind of flood flood the internet. And it's difficult for people to pick through what is real evidence, what is not, when you're kind of surrounded by this kind of mar- level of marketing. So, you know, there's nuance here. And what I'm trying to do with this, you know, with my research is really to put more scientific evidence behind some of these and to encourage others to do the same. Like I said, 33,000 species used by humans in medicine, and we've barely looked with any level of rigor at maybe a few hundred of those at most. Cassandra, in The Plant Hunter, you suggest that we need a paradigm shift away from ever stronger antibiotics towards new ways of treating infections. Because after all, we're facing a, a double crisis. The bugs are evolving. They're evolving resistance. And the economic model for antibiotic development is failing. Can you say a bit more about the alternative other paradigm that or paradigms that you're looking at? Absolutely. I mean, we can go back to those examples of the um, leaf blackberry, the biofilm inhibitor, and the pepper tree in blocking um, cell-cell signaling in bacteria. Again, I think that one of the big challenges is convincing scientists not to think outside of the box, but to realize there is no box, right? I think that when we frame our discovery research around the umbrella of penicillin and all of the amazing drugs that came out in the 50s and 60s, um, we're limiting ourselves to really exploring all the other ways that we could potentially deal with really life-threatening infections. And I think, again, this is where traditional wisdom of, of plants can play a role. And I think there's a lot we can learn from plants that, you know, there's a lot of arrogance in the field that things can only work the ways that they've always worked, right? <laughs> and my argument is that, you know, if we remain a bit more open-minded here and ask different questions, that just maybe we can come to better solutions in how to address these infections. And again, some examples are by attacking the defensive and offensive mechanisms of these bacteria or maybe not even bothering with the bacteria at all and focusing on the host um, and boosting the immune response. So there are a lot of different pathways to explore. And I think that plants will help lead us down some really interesting avenues. Dr. Quave, I wonder if you could also address the traditional knowledge that has been held by communities around the world who, who have been using plants medicinally for not just generations, not just decades, but for centuries. Yeah, I mean, there's an amazing body of traditional knowledge around the uses of plants. In some systems, this is more formalized. So if you think again about systems of medicine, like traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, 
These are bodies of knowledge that have been written and well-documented and are passed down from generation to generation, not through an apprenticeship program necessarily, but through formal schooling. Where we're at the greatest risk is for all of those um, bodies of knowledge that are passed down through oral tradition. So from teacher to apprentice, from healer to apprentice, as as during the practice of medicine and, and during their training. At the same time that we are facing a massive biodiversity crisis, we're also facing a linguistic crisis because we know that we are losing languages across the globe. And as you lose languages, you're also losing all of that knowledge. I mean, libraries worth of knowledge concerning how those people, you know, related with nature for their health and survival. Um, And so I think there's an urgency to not only document these bodies of knowledge, but also to see what we can do to help conserve them, because just writing this down isn't enough. We have to really think about ways to help foster living knowledge and and the practice and continued practice um, of of these um, traditions. Well, as you've mentioned, there are threats to biodiversity around the world. What can we do to address that? It's it, it can be a bit overwhelming to think how how can we how can we address this? Um, I think a lot of uh, there are a lot of personal choices that each and every one of us make every day, um, and it starts with things as simple as our own dietary choices. So much of the Earth's landmass um, that has been converted to agricultural cultivation, um, a lot of that ag development has been around growing basically growing plants to feed livestock. And um, one simple choice that people can make is to choose a more plant forward diet, you know, feed less into the animal production um, chain. So I'm not saying we all must become vegetarians. I understand people like meat. I grew up in a beef, you know, beef cattle country. So, I mean, we do eat meat at home, but I, I try to reduce our consumption to be more mindful of the impact that those choices have on the world there are other products, a lot of our processed foods um, also make an impact on what's happening to tropical forests. If you think about what's occurred in Indonesia and the tra- you know, the destruction of a lot of the tropical forests there so that we can grow palm oil and palm oil goes into making those delicious cookies that sit on store shelves <laughs> with very long expiration dates. So, you know, there are simple choices we can think about as a way to start and just raise awareness um, and think about also what you can do to conserve the environment in your, in your own neighborhood. And um, I think those are good places to start. Dr. Quave, I wonder if you could share some of the cool discoveries that have been made in your lab and, and what you hope for the future. Yeah, so I mentioned two of the discoveries already. I can talk about um, another really fun project that we've just recently published is on the discovery of a compound that restores the activity of a class of antibiotics known as beta-lactam antibiotics. And so this comes from a medicinal plant that grows here in the Southeast US. It's known as the um, beauty berry or American beauty berry, Calicarpa americana. Um, A really gorgeous plant has these beautiful purple fruits that are used in food, but native peoples of the Southeast U.S. also use this in treating malaria and other types of of infectious diseases. And we discovered this claridane diterpene type compound that basically makes these antibiotics work again. So it attacks the resistance mechanisms that some of these microbes have. Um, Our more recent work, I've been really putting a lot of effort into two projects over the past year with two of my more senior graduate students. 
One is that we're looking for therapies to treat uh, Candida auris, which is a fungal pathogen. And that pathogen can, um, you know, has a very high mortality rate. It's a big concern for patients undergoing cancer therapy. And we've identified an, a compound that that's pretty effective and as a kind of a straight up antifungal agent. And lastly, this is work that's we're going to be submitting very soon is our work on COVID-19. Like many scientists, um, when COVID-19 hit, I not only suffered the, the personal consequences, I've lost a number of friends, um, and colleagues because of this disease. And I was really desperate to jump into the fray and see what we could do with our chemical library. We have over 2000 extracts in our library of medicinal plant extracts representing over 600 species um, of plants that are used in the traditional treatment of infectious and inflammatory disease. We've completed testing the collection of extracts. So this will be the largest ever attempted um, assessment against plants. And we identified two that seemed to look pretty safe and um, work really well also in live virus models. So this is something that we're really excited to share with the world. And I hope to have this um, out in the literature in early 2022. You're listening to Dr. Cassandra Quave. She's an associate professor of dermatology and associate professor in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University. There, she leads drug discovery research initiatives focused on fighting infections. She also teaches courses on medicinal plants, food, and human health. Her new book is The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. After the break, we'll find out where ethnobotany suggests we might find plants with antiviral activity. Dr. Quave has a podcast on foodie pharmacology. What does she mean by that? A compound like thymol in thyme and other plants has been used in Listerine and Vicks VapoRub. Does thymol have science on its side? She'll share a few of her outstanding adventures and the future for nature's next medicines. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Gaia Herbs. 
For years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds. Learn more at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. And by Cocovia, with its memory and focus product designed to support five areas of brain performance. Memory and Focus is a blend of plant-based ingredients, including cocoa extract, lutein, epicatechin, and natural caffeine. More information at cocovia.com. Most health professionals think about new drug breakthroughs coming from the laboratory. What if instead they could be derived from plants? Our guest today is Dr. Cassandra Quave. She's the herbarium curator and an associate professor of dermatology at the School of Medicine and associate professor in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University. There, she leads drug discovery research initiatives focused on fighting infections. She also teaches courses on medicinal plants, food, and human health. Her new book is The Plant Hunter. A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Best Medicines. Dr. Quave, for the last almost two years, I think the world has been totally focused on COVID-19, and for good reason. I mean, wow, what a daunting pandemic this has been. And we have put a lot of hope into vaccines and now oral medicines, And, you know, the hope is, of course, that these drugs will be safe and effective and that they will not lead to resistance, although that may be um, one of the concerns with the Pfizer drug. But fingers crossed. But it would be nice if ethnobotany could contribute something to antiviral medicines. And I think this is something that in general we haven't thought about. We, we have thought about bacteria, and you've done research in that field, but is it possible that plants might have antiviral activity? Absolutely. I mean, when we think even about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the COVID-19 disease, um, there is a plant-derived compound that's been shown to be effective as a cleaning agent. So this is thymol, um, from the herb, the culinary herb thyme that that has been on the um, approved list of ingredients to, you know, to surface clean um, surfaces from from the virus. I think that absolutely, there's much more that we can do in the field of virology to look at some of these plant derived natural products. And you know, I've been hesitant to work in virology because I was really trained more as a bacteriologist. So this has been a very new endeavor for my lab to take this pivot, but we have the tools and we have the capacity and I'm getting more and more interested also in, for example, um, looking at our collection for new therapies for flu and some of these other common viruses. So yes, I think there's a great need. And I think that we're going to continue to find things Um, in our own work. You know, it's, it's still very early days, but I'm, I'm really excited about what we were able to find. These are both from plants that were used um, as kind of medicinal foods. So they could be generally recognized as safe. And there were a lot of plants, however, in our screen that are very cardiotoxic. I think this is another thing that's really important to emphasize that not everything in nature is safe. I had to speak out um, a couple of times during the pandemic to 
urge people not to eat certain deadly poisonous plants that were being touted as COVID cures um, because of their well-known cardiotoxicities. Um, and so there's a fine line you need to walk, especially you know when you're talking about medicines that people could potentially access themselves um, by going to the plants themselves. And I want to be really cognizant of that and, and careful because um, you know the dosing, the way the plants are prepared, all of those different factors really matter in both the pharmacological effect of those medicines and also their their safety profiles. Cassandra, we love the idea of foodie pharmacology, your podcast. So can you help us understand how can we get people in general and the medical profession, perhaps in particular, to embrace that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think foodie pharmacology evolved out of my class that I teach, which is called Food Health and Society. And just from discussions with people, I'm, I'm, I'm frequently asked, you know, what can I do in my own life to integrate more plants and in, 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 as, as medicines? And I always go back to the diet because a lot of the spices that we take for granted, the things that our kitchen cupboards, you know, things like nutmeg and black pepper at one point were incredibly valuable and considered to be panaceas. I mean, these were things that people definitely used as medicines. And we know that certain cuisines bring together different, different spices. Um, and there is a much more marked pharmacological effect when certain things are combined. I'm thinking in particular, of examples like combining um, turmeric with fresh ground black pepper, the piperine in black pepper increases the bioavailability of turmeric, increasing the anti-inflammatory action of including that spice in your diet. When you think about tomatoes, everyone knows that tomatoes have some great antioxidant compounds. One is lycopene. Lycopene is fat soluble. And so you really need to cook it with an oil base of fat. Um, and there also have been studies that have shown when you combine it with an allium, so garlic or onion, can also increase its effects and and distribution in the body. I think this sounds like a it sounds like a recipe. In fact, a, a couple of familiar recipes, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so you know, we are eating medicines in some ways with some of these different traditional recipes, and I think that's another area that would be really um, interesting to to expand our our understanding of is how these different culinary spices when combined, how they can help boost our health. Well, I was fascinated to hear you mention thymol, T-H-Y-M-O-L, thyme, T-H-Y-M-E, mm -hmm. because there are a number of over-the-counter products that people will instantly recognize, like Listerine, the old-fashioned amber mouthwash that has, what else is in there besides thyme, Terry? Eugenol and uh, methyl salicylate and menthol. And, and all you know, plant compounds. Yeah. All plant compounds. <laughs> and, you know, people have been telling us now for decades that if, if you massage amber listerine into your scalp, if you're if you have itches or if your child has lice, that it'll be fabulously effective. And of course, <laughs> A lot of people say that it works really well against nail fungus. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of health professionals who go, oh, there they go again. There go the gradins. <laughs> well, and don't forget the Vicks VapoRub, which also contains thymol and a bunch of those other compounds. But it sounds to me like thymol has science on its side. 
Absolutely. It definitely has science on its side. I mean, again, it, it's, I think a lot of people don't, when they read those complicated words on labels, they don't immediately think, oh, that comes from a plant. You know, as someone who studies, you know, plant chemistry, I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's a plant compound, <laughs> but absolutely you find, you find these and, and, in in a number of products. And, you know, I was suffering from some back pain this week and I put some Bengay on my back and the main ingredient was menthol, <laughs> which comes from peppermint. Right. So, um, and these are all plants, of course, that healers have used for pain, for treating infection. There are antifungal properties of many of these um, terpenoid based compounds. We're also doing some really interesting work on terpenes from hops because there's a lot of interest right now in the potential pain relieving effects of cannabis. And while cannabis is very difficult for us to get permissions to study in the lab, hops, which are a botanical, I guess you could say cousin within the same family are not. And, and we're finding some nice evidence um, for those and, and other models. So absolutely, you find plant compounds in lots of products, including, you know, one of my favorite classes, and this is going to sound very strange um, to teach is, is in my botanical medicine and health course, we talk about laxatives. And if you think about a lot of the, the over-the-counter laxatives, those are all plant compounds. And I think uh, it's a very obvious effect. So a lot of people have carried forward that knowledge in their traditional uh, medical lore. Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Quave, one of the through lines in The Plant Hunter is your personal experience in life. You faced a lot of adversity. How did you find the confidence in yourself so that you know the value of your ideas and your work for the whole world? Thank you. Yeah, it's, you know, I think growing up disabled and having to undergo so many surgeries, you know, I had one to two surgeries a year throughout my childhood to rebuild my body, um, fix my hip and my spine and my leg. That definitely fostered a sense of resilience when you're just constantly kicked down and you have to get back up. You kind of, after a while, you just start to get back up. And I don't know if it's as much resilience or confidence as it is stubbornness. I think that whenever I've really felt strongly about something, and I really do at my core of my being believe that we're going to find really great innovations in these medicinal plants. And I think that especially for the treatment of infection that I've, you know, I stand by my beliefs and it hasn't been easy. There have definitely been times where I've thought, why am I doing this? I could... <laughs> be doing anything else in the world, but it's, it's my passion at the same time. And that's really what's, what's driven me on. Now you've had some pretty astonishing adventures all over the globe. Can you tell us about one or two that really stand out? Yeah. So, I mean, I think anytime you're on a field expedition in a remote part of the world, you know, it could be considered an adventure. And for me, I mean, there's so much joy just in experiencing nature from, you know, different environments and, and working with different people and different cultures. Um, in the book, I open up with my, my first field expedition, which was in Peru. Um, really, it was a, a research internship to work with a local healer and that was really transformational for me to, to be in the Amazon, to be exposed to different ways of understanding medicine. Um, until that point, I'd really only considered medicine to be the practice of pharmacy and surgery. And it was through that experience I learned it's about much more 
Um, it's about connectivity um, with the world and really the psychology of, of medicine as well. So being an amputee, <laughs> I got myself in trouble early on in my first expedition in the Amazon, um, walking down this rough jungle path and just basically rubbing my stump really raw and ended up with a, a pretty bad infection on my stump and had to treat it myself. And that was really a frustrating moment for me because I'd finally made it to this amazing part of the world. And I was kind of stuck, you know, at, at camp and couldn't get out and get in the world. But since then, you know, I've, I've worked out different ways to get to where I need to go. Um, and I also travel nowadays with my kids, um, because they come with me on these field expeditions. So if we need to get up a mountain on an Island and, you know, in the Mediterranean, we get a pack of, of mules to help us get up the mountain or donkeys, um, in Florida, we've used airboats to get around and ATVs in the Balkans. My most recent expedition just before COVID, this was in the summer of 2019. I was there with a photography team from Nat Geo and, um, we went into some very isolated places with a four wheel drive, but in there arriving, if you can picture just these amazing, amazing meadows full of uh, an entire rainbow, a kaleidoscope of color of, of flowers in bloom, including many different species of terrestrial orchids. It was like paradise, you know, but the reality at the same time is I suffered from horrible pollen allergies and was sneezing nonstop. So, you know, there's, there's the good, bad, and the ugly with these adventures, but, um, mostly the good they're just, it's a really, um, amazing, uh, path to be able to, and I feel very privileged to be able to do what I do. Well, hopefully there's something in there that will help you with the allergies, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, actually, that that brings to mind something called chromalin sodium. And I, Terry, didn't that come from bishop's weed? Yeah. And, I mean, this is an amazing drug that has not gotten the uh, the applause it deserves, uh, not just for allergies, but for mast cell uh, dysregulation. So th there are so many discoveries that have already been made and that are yet to be made. Uh, I really can't wait for your next publication because it sounds fabulous. I, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the future for nature's next medicines. I mean, I think for the future of nature's next medicines, we're definitely in a race. We're in a race against time, against the biodiversity crisis. We've got a race to really help to not only study these plants so that we can benefit, you know, all people through the development of new medicines, but also to bring that knowledge back to the, to the people that hold that knowledge, the understanding of how they work back to the healers. I think when it comes to discoveries in, in plant natural products, I have a lot of hope for the field of pain. Um, I think that there's, there's exciting work coming about. There's also exciting work coming about for the treatment of, you know, psychological issues like PTSD. I've been really heartened to see that the government is finally starting to invest in some of these clinical studies on psilocybin for helping people get over traumatic events, including phantom pain and amputees, which is kind of something I'd never really thought about as, as a way to kind of uh, deal with that. Again, infectious disease, I think that plants do hold the clue. I think we need to put the work in. There are definitely a lot of compounds. We, we published a paper just this year in um, the journal Chemical Reviews, which is a premier journal in, by the American Chemical Society. 
And we documented or we reviewed and found 459 plant-derived compounds that have already been published in literature. Now, we don't know for all of these what their safety profiles look like, but there are 459 compounds out there already discovered that have um, very potent activity in inhibiting the growth of a number of different bacteria. So there's already a lot that's been done, but we need to push it forward. In drug discovery and development, there's something called the valley of death. And this is where I say all good drugs go to die. And this is really where you have to gather all that important preclinical data to show efficacy and safety in animals before you can kind of create this package to bring to the FDA to get your investigational new drug um, permissions to start a clinical trial. Unfortunately, the scientific enterprise isn't really set up to fund this through grants. And so this is where the private industry kind of has to step in. We need more private public engagement in this field. Dr. Cassandra Quave, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Cassandra Quave. She's the herbarium curator and an associate professor of dermatology at the School of Medicine and associate professor in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University. There, she leads drug discovery research initiatives focused on fighting infections. She also teaches courses on medicinal plants, food, and human health. Her new book is The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. And by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,285. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. If you'd like to add a comment about this show, you can check out the show notes on our website. It's number 1,285. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest about important health stories, such as drug discoveries or dangers. By subscribing to our newsletter, you will also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, 
please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.